Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never play the piano again. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then green. Oh, thank you. you want tissue? Ah, thank you. You're green, love. Hi. 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 I am also cold. How do I sound okay? Well, oh, she can't see because you got us <laughs> talking to the mic. Bro. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. That's great. Thank you. All right. You're very welcome. And then we'll end with yellow. Uh, retired criminal. Um, glad to be free. <laughs> All right. Um, so... Uh, reminder that the microphones work the best if you're closest to it. Okay. So you'll hear that if I move far away from the microphone, my voice changes. So the closer I am, the better I sound. And we want to all hear your voices. Other than that, everything sounds great. Was, is that a camera too? Is that a it camera is a camera. Too? It is not currently activated. Okay. It's usually for like virtual guests so that you can put them on the TV. So um, I should face that way? Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. You ready to have some fun? Let's do yes. it. All right. We're rolling. So go whenever you're comfortable. Hey, hey, y'all. You are listening to Definitely Not For Everyone. This is Nicolette and Diana, and we are your hosts today. Um, we are talking today with Mark, who is a Manhattan-based ghostwriter whose writing ranges from business books to memoirs, um, and Ishmael, whose story this book, Just Another Book, belongs to. We are here to talk about Ishmael and his journey, as well as talk to Mark about how this book came to be. So, Usually, how I like to begin our conversations is by telling the audience in one or two sentences who we are and how we might be feeling today. Who's going first? I will start. Go Hello. ahead, girl. I'm Diana. How are you? So happy that we all are here today. And two sentences. I am cold <laughs> as fuck. And another, <laughs> I am so hungry. So, but what? I am so happy to be here with both of you and yeah. I am so interested in hearing your story. Hey, I'm Mark and I'm also happy to be here, happy to be here with my friend Ishmael and just excited to get his story out there. It's mm -hmm. an amazing story. So, um glad to be here. Yeah. Wow. I'm so happy that we were all able to kind of get together and make this thing happen because I too believe that his story is super interesting. I was talking to Diane on the phone the other day and we were just like, okay, we're ready to read the book. Yeah. Like, where like, the book at? That's what I said. Because we're ready for it. I was like, you know what I'm saying? Can I go get the book? And she was <laughs> like, wait, wait. I was like, oh, okay. We'll talk about that. Um, yeah. Ishmael. Well, I guess I'm last. So, uh, like I said before, I'm a retired criminal. I'm just getting used to freedom. You know, I've been on five years, but uh, you know, seems like the first day mm. every day. Yeah, so, you know, mm. it's the best part about it. Yeah. Well, we're happy you're out. Well, so am I. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> All um, right. So I want to kind of try to head it straight into some of the questions that we had, um, and uh, Ishmael. Can you, like, paint me a picture of what your childhood was like? Well, you know, I, I had a good family. My parents uh, imported, or however you want to call it, from uh, Israel. They were freedom fighters over there. Uh, I even have pictures of myself with Yasser Arafat holding me as a child. Wow. Um, you know, I, I read uh, Marx and Engels and, you know, France Fanon and... Uh, Nietzsche at the age of nine. You know, my wow. father was what they call a Hafiz. He knew the whole Quran cover to cover. He spoke 25 languages. He was, you know, phenomenal. But um, I grew up in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, I liked the street. You know, mm -hmm. I knew a couple of the Westies. I was close with them. 
Um, and, you know, I wanted to be a gangster, I guess. You know, that's what it was. I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, people know Hell's Kitchen now. It's yes. soft compared to what it was. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, and, and that's it. It's just, uh, you know, um, I was a humble kid. Uh, you know, I was timid. My father didn't believe in teaching about fighting. You know, my punishments were... He would put rice on the floor or corn and make me kneel there and hold books in the air. He wouldn't hit me because the guy was big, you know. He he didn't want to hurt me. Mm. And um, that's some punishment too, though, man. My knees would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th <laughs> I think I got arthritis in my knees. You know? <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, we. What was your mama like? Oh, my mom. You know, we never got along. We always argued up to when she died. We couldn't talk on the phone more than five minutes because mm. she would just, you know, press me. She knew the right spots, and my father always said, "You guys are too much alike. That's mm. why you don't get along." Mm. But uh, they were both good people, you know. Um, um, and I also heard that they they had to get go back. Yeah, they got deported under the Patriot Act on nine eleven. Um, you know, because of their affiliations. Right now, my mother's brother, he's the president of Palestine. His name's Mahmoud Abbas. And uh, he's not much of a president. You know, he's more of a puppet than anything. Yeah. But, um, you know, he is what he is. Um, they couldn't deport me. So when I came home, they gave me continued problems and getting public assistance. They would tell me, even though I had a birth certificate from St. Luke's and a Social Security card, I still needed to prove my citizenship. I what? don't know what more I needed. Are you on the watch list or something? Yeah, I'm Why on a no-fly list. Uh, okay. You know, I can't get on a plane, but, um, you know, I, I didn't blow the towers up. You know, I was in jail. Um, my parents didn't blow the towers up. They were very good people. They supported the police athletic league, you know, they... Never had a parking ticket, nothing. They'd never been in trouble from 1969 when they came to America to mm -hmm. 2001 when they were deported, you know. And my sister had, uh, she was killed in a car accident right after she had her child. So my parents wow. adopted him. So he was two years old when the feds, they just came in their house with hoods on and uh, said, grab what you got on and let's go. Wow. Took him to an airport and they were one of the 21 families that were flown out of New York when there was a no-fly in New York, except for those people they were sending back to country, you know. Get out of here. Um, yeah. Are you still in contact with no, your family? No, my father, I came home mm -hmm. uh, October 2015. Mm -hmm. My dad died that month. I'm sorry. And my mother died six months later. Wow. So, uh, yeah. And your nephew is still out there? My nephew's out there. He's a teacher. He plays like nine different instruments. He's, mm -hmm. a, you know, a very good kid, um, you know. I just can't get over there because of my parole. You know, once uh, the parole is up, right. I could, you know, do what I want. But unfortunately, with this ALS, they tell me that I got about three to five years, and that's about how much my parole is. So. Well, speaking about that, ALS. Yeah, a year ago. Uh, this makes a year, January, I was diagnosed. Um, you know, it was kind of kicking the ass pretty much because uh, I did 30 years in prison, yeah. made it out, and uh, then they give me a disease that I can't get a cure for. So, Oh, wow. my goodness. God, I don't even know where to go. Well, where to go, go after that? <laughs> oh, so I guess this is why you wanted to write about his, his story, his life, because this is amazing. And yeah. that's only a part of it. I'm telling you. That's like a piece. My mind is blown. Well, let me say one more thing before he of says course. something. You know, Mark, Mark is, of course. you know, Mark, uh, he likes to help the homeless. And uh, he would come around on the weekends and give out coffee. And we were just speaking. You know, I would tell him stories like I'm doing to you guys. And he said, you know what, you should write a book. And I said, well, you know, matter of fact, I did write a book and I have it ready. 
And uh, that's what, and when I found out what he did, you know, kind of helped me out to get a little further in the process. Yeah. That is so awesome. Wow, Mark. <laughs> I mean, we're awesome. gonna, we're definitely gonna go back to Ishmael because I need to yeah, understand yeah. a little bit more. I want to talk about um, his time um, in jail and mm-hmm. what that was like in the era that that was. Um, but I wanted to kind of head into Mark and tell me about you. Like, how did you grow up? Like, are you a New Yorker? What was your like childhood? Your your young years? Like, I mean, you're still young, but like your younger years. <laughs> No, you know, we moved around a lot. My father was a Presbyterian minister, and he was also a college professor. So, you know, we moved. I, I was actually born in Montana, but then, you know, he got his his master's degree at Montana State. Then he went to get his Ph.D. at Penn State. So we lived in central Pennsylvania. Then we went back to uh, South Dakota and Nebraska, where he taught at uh, a couple of s- small private colleges. And... Um, so I guess I lived in Omaha for, for about 30 years. So that, as much as any place, that Omaha is like a hometown. Mm. Um, although after having lived here for 14 years, every time I go back there, it just seems like so slow. <laughs> I, it's relaxing for about a day and a half. And then I'm like, would you people please hurry up? Um, and so you're a writer. Yeah. You're I, a ghostwriter. In Omaha, I, you know, did a couple other careers, got into the advertising business, eventually um, owned an ad agency, about 22 people with a couple of other partners. And oh, then nice. just had always wanted to live in New York. I mean, I had friends who were here. I just felt the calling, you know, yes. to come to New York. And uh, luckily, I was in a position that I could financially, that I could just kind of do it. So because I got to this point in my life where it was like, you're either going to see what this is like or always wonder. Okay. So I sold my piece of the action and ran away with the circus, basically. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And so, can um, what are some books that you've written off the top of your head? I know we didn't. Well, yeah. um, Or are you even allowed to say you're not? No, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. (laughs) I published a great book last year in February called "I Knew You Before You Were Born," and it's essentially a birth memoir of, of a woman who she was. 22, going to nursing school, had a really troubled family background, and everybody, she got she got pregnant, no husband. Everybody was saying, you know, you got to either get an abortion or adopt this, put this baby up for adoption. And something in her said, this might be the only child that I ever have, mm-hmm. so I'm going to keep it and raise it. So the book is really about, you know, takes from her finding out she's pregnant until the child is born. Oh, nice. Um, and she's very, we're, she's in the, she just did a speech like a couple of weeks ago for um, this organization called Nebraskans Embracing Life, which is trying to, you know, support women and other choices besides abortion. And it was amazing. Yeah. The, the governor of Nebraska was there and the lieutenant governor and um, she's starting to speak on, she's on a Christian radio station in February. So, um, cool. they're all like my kids, you know, I get excited by the possibilities <laughs> and certainly excited by the possibility of what, what Ishmael is going to do yes, too, because definitely. I just think that there's so many, 
so many social justice issues wrapped up around his story of, you know, juvenile incarceration. And he can tell you about it. But, you know, back when he was incarcerated, there there wasn't the kind of oversight that we're getting no. today. You know, now, <clears throat> fortunately, we, people are talking about, OK, they're going to shut Rikers Island down and they're going to do all this stuff. And there's been awareness of mistreatment of inmates out there. But back then, it was just what they did. And nobody bothered to notice. Yeah. So, Ishmael, um, what... What was the mistake that you made? Well, um, without giving away too much. Yes, because they got to read the book. Well, it was uh, <laughs> it was a homicide. Um, the homicide wasn't meant to happen. It wasn't supposed to be a homicide. I mean, the homicide happened through the you know actions of the person. You know, but when the judge heard it, he thought that. I was paid to kill somebody, and at the time I was 12 years old, so he said, oh, wait a minute, if this kid is going to take money to murder somebody at 12, what's he going to do when he gets older? So they filed some type of legal maneuver where they could give me 30 to life as an adult at 12 years old. Me and uh, Malcolm X's grandson were the only two in the state of New York that that was done to. That is, it makes me so mad. Unbelievable. It's going to make a lot of people mad. Yeah, as it should. A lot of people mad. That is... And you and you went to Rikers. No, well, I first started in Spofford. Um, you know, at that time, I was off the hook. You know, uh, I had stabbed a kid with a pencil, and, uh, you know, they sent me to Rikers. But, um, they I, sent, yeah, they sent 12? me to Rikers. But at Rikers Island, they have C-74, which is an adolescent unit. Okay. But, you know, and I have to give this part because this is, you know... It's like something out of a movie, even to myself, and it happened to me. When I got to Rikers, the guy that died in my case, his brother was a correction officer there. So he screwed the paperwork up and got me put on the adult wing. Oh, and he paid goodness. somebody to try to kill me and oh, got caught. Oh, my goodness. This is more than a book. Mm. This is a movie. This definitely is. Well, Mark's trying to get the movie right. Good. Well, we gotta help. Yes, <laughs> that's that's no, the I'm whole point. Oh well, yeah, no, it, that needs to happen. Ah, oh. it does. Wow. What what made you have the courage to share your story, to put it well to paper? You know, I mean, a lot of people all through my life, especially my mother, she would always tell me, "Man, what you've been through, you need to write a book." And people would hear pieces of my story, or they'd see it on the news, or. You know, um, I ended up catching two bodies while I was in prison. And What does that mean? I killed two people while I was in prison. But don't get me wrong. Don't think I'm some kind of murderer or anything. No. A life in prison is different. Yeah. Life in prison, if you're not violent, if, if you don't make your mark or show who you are, you're not going to survive. You're not going right. to survive. You know, yes. you know, I never forget. I got into an argument one time, and I thought I left it alone, and a guy pulled me to the side and said, listen, man, nothing's never over. Mm -hmm. He said, you better make an example because if you don't, everybody will get you and you can't beat everybody. Right. You know, so you have to make an example. You have to have people say, listen, don't mess with him because you're going to have a problem. And um, It's do or die, basically. Yeah, pretty much. You know, jail now, jail, uh, a CO will help you quicker than an inmate. 
you know, inmates are, are just what that word is, an inmate, you know, mm-hmm. being babysat. Mm-hmm. They they have no conscience, you know, whether it's their parents or drugs or whatever they got involved with. They, they have no sensibility, no honor for themselves. You know, my dad used to say, when you look in the mirror, if you can't love, trust and respect what you see, you can never do it to nobody else. Damn. So, mm. um, you know, yeah. and that's one thing I do every day when I wake up. I look in the mirror as long as I can look myself in the eyes. I could care less what anybody thinks. So what know? was what was your saving grace in there? Well, you know, I learned how to fight later in life. I was thinking the same thing. It became an art for me. You know, I when I was younger, we used to play a game, uh, me and another person that I was close to in the prison, how many people we could hit first shot, knock them out. You know, we just walk up to anybody in the hallways and, you know. And my thing was, well, you don't like it, I can fight. You want to fight? You know, that's pretty much what it was, Mm. you know. And um, I just didn't care. Mm. I had life. They gave me life. No possibility of parole, you know, 30 to life. I was 12. Mm. I couldn't see, you know, I wouldn't be 21. I wouldn't be 18. I wouldn't graduate from high school. You know, um, 1986, I got my GED. 1988, I got my associate's degree. But when I went to school, they said I was neurologically impaired, emotionally disturbed. Uh, they tried to put me in special classes. So I made my classroom 42nd Street. Mm-hmm. We used to come to 42nd Street. The truant officer used to come. I never forget. We used to have tokens, and we put the string through the hole and mm-hmm. drop it in or just jump the turnstile and make the police chase us. You know, it was just fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't like school because it, it wasn't challenging. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, I knew about stuff that my teachers didn't know about, you know, due to what my parents taught me. That's so, you know. So I heard that you started studying law when you were in there. Yeah, that's when I had my associate's degree in. Um, you know, I got I was a paralegal uh, 1988. I got my associate's degree. I worked in every law library and every facility I was in. I, I got a person off a of death row. I, I have some cases in the green books. Anybody that knows law knows what the green books are, you know. Uh, appealed cases, decided cases, reverse cases. Nice. Um, you know, and the only thing I did that, the only reason I did that because it was the state of New York versus whoever's name was there. Mm-hmm. And I was somebody who they said was mentally disturbed or neurologically impaired or whatever. And I'd be the prosecutor that went to college eight years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, that was an accomplishment. So yeah. you were 30 to life. When did you know you was going to be paroled, or how did that process happen where you found well, out? Well, I, I had a little more than 30 in. Okay. Uh, the second body I caught, I ended up getting overturned because I stabbed the person, but he died because his appendix burst. They okay. tried to, you know, blame Say that, that on me. Okay. Right. Yeah, okay. you know, but I ended up going back on appeal and gave it back. Uh, as I got older, I started calming down more. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, I, you know, now they have what's called a Maui box if you have mentally. Uh, Mental problems, you know, they can't put you in a hole for too long. You're solitary mm-hmm. confinement, you know. But I, I did seven years one time in solitary confinement, 24-hour lock-in. Um, nothing in your cell, nothing but your boxers. They don't feed you regular food. They have this thing called a loaf. It looks like a little I Debbie Duncan stick. It has carrots, everything. And if, you know, my thing was fighting the police. So if you had a beef with the police, they would give you a moldy one with mold on it. And, you know, and I'd call down the hall. Hey, you're going to eat that loaf? They said, you're going to eat this? I said, hey, send them down. I'll eat it. Mm. You know, that was home. Mm. You know, I would tell people the first five years of jail is rough. 
because you might got a girl or family or whatever. You still remember the streets, mm-hmm. you know. It's rough because you want to know what's going on. Hey, uh, you know, what are they wearing now? What are they doing? <laughs> you know, but your girl, she leaves, you know, um, your family get tired. You know, the packages don't come in no more. The phone don't ring no more. But the last couple years are hard, too, because now you're saying, wow, I wonder what it's like out there. I don't even remember nobody out there. Damn, how can I, you know, who am I going to go see? Who do I know? You know, everybody I know is in jail. Hmm. So, you know, but in between, once you get past the first five years, I was home. That was my home. Hmm. I would have guys come and say, wow, you're back again? I said, back? What do you mean? I didn't leave yet. Hmm. You know, guys coming in and out, in and Hmm. out, in and out. And, Hmm. you know, it just... Wasn't but as I got older, I, I you know I calmed down. I got wiser. I knew that wasn't the place to be. I knew I wanted to go to society. I, I wanted to try to have a family. I wanted to do things my parents did. You know, my father used to say, "When you get older, you're gonna say I should have listened to what my father told me." And I tell you, I say that every day. Mm, yeah. You know, it's just uh, you know we think we know everything. I'm sure everybody said one day, "Man, I can't wait till I'm 18 so I could get out of this house." Yeah. But you know what? I wish I could go back to that house because I didn't have to pay for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know how hard it is sleeping on the street. I I wasn't a bum. I wasn't homeless. My family had money. I had money in jail. I came home with twenty five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, just from working in the jail. You know, doing law work. And I ended up on the street. And mm-hmm. and you know. I feel bad saying this, but I'm not the same as those people out there. I'm, mm. I'm different. I'm mm. not meant to be out there. That's mm. not, you know, what I, I'm not built for that, you know, but I do what I have to. So was it difficult adjusting when you came out? And what was your process when you find out, okay, I'm leaving my home and now I'm going out into this world oh, I, I was haven't ready. seen I was ready. You know, I was ready. I was ready because, listen, I beat jail. You know, I, I on 9-11, the police beat me up. I was in a coma for nine weeks. Nine weeks. I came out of coma. I had a seizure disorder, traumatic head injury. They broke my hip. I had to get my hip replaced twice. You know, all because my name is Ishmael Abdel Bassir Bass. I guess they thought I was one of the terrorists that blew up the towers. You know, um, I was stabbed. My lung got punctured. And then while I was, while they had me in a bed held up by straps because they had to inflate a balloon in my lungs so it would heal. I caught pneumonia and I would hear the doctor say, I don't think he's going to make it. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things I've been through, you know, fights and, and just, you know, when I caught the body and they said, listen, they're going to make sure you never get out. Never. You know, to make it through stuff like that, I was ready for the street. You know, I, I hope the street was ready for me. Mm. That's that's how I felt. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, and I and I came home and I, I I went off running. You know, I got out. I got a little place in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, mm. The whole first year, I Craigslist uh, everything. I had a friend show me how to use the internet and all that, and uh, I kept trying to find jobs. Oh, you're overqualified, or oh, we're not looking for anybody. And and here I read the ad they put in the paper. Start immediately. But how aren't you looking for anybody? I knew that with the technology, they would run my name and murder for hire, arson, you know. I guess uh, they didn't want nobody like that working there. Mm. So when the money started getting low and I was at risk of getting put out, I figured, hey, let me go over here on 34th Street and see if I can sell some dope. Mm. And I got popped. And my PO said, listen, you're not only going to have to do all the time you got left. And at that time... I had life parole. Mm. You're going to have to do whatever time they give you. But she let me stay out. And um, things worked out. 
and it got dismissed. And I went to 17th and Union Square, and I sat in a chair with a sign and told people what my situation was and said, no matter what happens, I'm never going back to jail again. And that's where I'm at now, four years later. So I know that this book that we're talking about Mm -hmm. today is mainly about your time in prison, mm-hmm. right? But there's a second book that's going to be hopefully coming out too. Yeah, well, right? it's finished. I mean, it's it's like, uh, and I was just going over it yesterday. I was I was going to send it to Mark so he could read the first part, but I don't know how to work that, uh, how to email the stuff, so right. I, I couldn't get it to him. But um, yeah, I was just reading the beginning part on, and you know, and it pretty much explains from what I just told you and how these last four years on that street corner have been because. It's just another adventure. That's why I called that one just another day, you know? Mm, I like that. Mm-hmm. So Mark was telling me that he has a favorite quote. What's your favorite quote, Mark, of Ishmael's? Oh, well, I was... Uh, Ishmael. Right, I think you have a couple, but... <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was telling her about just how powerful it was when you said this thing about there's no such thing as an ex-con. Mm. Oh, yeah. So... Mm. Maybe you could expound on that a little bit. Yeah, I I don't know who thought up that word, but once you're convicted, you're always convicted unless the the charge gets uh, expunged, which if you have arson or murder or sexual assault, there's no such thing as expungement. So how can you be an ex-con? Because once you're convicted, you're convicted for life. It takes a conviction in order to do prison time. So if I'm convicted, how can I be an ex-con? You know, I'm always a convict. I'm always going to be a convicted person. Mm. You know. So, mm. what's your feeling? I think I have like two or three more questions mm, left. Mm. Um, one of them is, um, what's your feeling about the criminal justice system, both of you, from hearing his story and then Go also ahead, from Mark. your own experiences? Definitely not. <laughs> well, I think to be a little even-handed, I think that we have made progress because I think compared to when Ishmael was incarcerated, people are starting to wise up to the idea that a 12-year-old Ugh. boy is not a fully formed adult who can really understand the consequences of his actions. But, you know, the I just think that there's so much work to be done yet because um, – I wrote a book, I'm trying to think of what the title of it is, uh, makes me want to holler about a guy who um, was incarcerated and eventually wound up, I think, writing for the Washington Post. Um, but he's just talking about that the, the statistics are astonishing, that in the, the African-American community, 30% of that community have a family member who has gone through the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. Yep. And, you know, my response to that is shame on us because Mm -hmm. the reason that that happens and I'm, you know, I live in Harlem. um, I'm part of that, been a part of that culture um, through my church, like for 12 or 13 years now. So I have begun to understand the challenges up there. And it's just like there's not a lot of these kids would be happy to do something else and join a gang, but we just haven't. We have really fallen down as a society in presenting options, good options. Yes. Yeah. And a, a lot of these kids grow up in situations where there's no father, um, you know. So all of a sudden, you know, here's this guy who runs this gang 
who's going to provide him the support and the nurturing that he needs. Mm -hmm. And for him, it's a no-brainer. And it's exciting. And, you know, Ishmael has talked to me about it. It's just like there's there's something about that lure of the street. There's that excitement there that if you're a smart and <laughs> I know my pastor says, you know, some of the most intelligent people you will ever meet right. are in jail and prison. That's right. You know, it's not that those folks are dumb. Right. You know, they've just unfortunately used their intellect in ways that have taken them in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. But if that same, if his same intellect, if their same intellect had been purposed in a positive direction, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. think what could happen. Yeah. And I, my prayer, my hope is that with that beautiful Kamala Harris. As our vice president, who has a background in mm -hmm. the criminal justice system, I just, you know, I'm pinning a lot on her because I just think that now that she's in office, I hope that there's a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. that they're going to start looking at in terms of rehabilitation, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's been a long battle. It's been a really long battle. Because we don't really address this issue of recidivism. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys are just like, in, like Ishmael just said, oh, you back, you know, because that's the cycle. Yep. Yes. They get out, you know, they're released, don't know what to do. There's not, you know, they haven't been rehabilitated to the point where they can get a good job, get in a new circle of friends, and it's just so much easier to go back. Yeah. Mm. And opportunities, as we hear. There are none. There are none when you yeah. come out, it seems like. There there are few and far in between. Yeah. What's your take on the criminal justice system? Ishmael? Well, I'm a little harder on things, you know. Yeah. You know, As a lot of people be. argue with me because I say, well, hey, even though I was 12, I wasn't retarded. I knew what I was doing, mm -hmm. you know. I didn't want nobody to die. It's unfortunate it happened, you know. But I didn't want that to happen. But I believe like this. I chose to be a criminal. Police are police. If they catch me, that means I'm not doing my job right. So they're they're only doing what they do. There there was a a, a piece I wrote. It was called Chili Homeboy versus the Police Soldier. If you look at guys in the street, they're in a dope game, pimp game. Everybody's in a game. But when the police come, they're on the war on crime, war on drugs. When they leave their home, they're prepared. Excuse me. They're prepared for war, you know. They know that any day they can go out and not come home, you know. The people in the street aren't like that. If you want to succeed, now, don't get me wrong. If somebody came and says I had to follow the police horse and clean up his poop and I could do that as a job and get paid, I'll do it. Because by any means, I want to succeed, you know. There, there are people in jail that when they get to jail, you have to understand, I could get a million-dollar lawyer, Johnny Cochran, and pay him all the money in the world. But at the end of the day, I'm the only one that's going to go to jail. I'm the only one whose life is on the line. So if I don't partake in my case and partake and understand what time, type of time I could do, what, what my charge, um, you know, curtails, everything like that, then I don't really care. Mm. You know, the majority of people in jail, and this is now mm -hmm. and back then, they're more worried about who the best basketball player is or, or who, 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 what the new rap song that came out or, or, Hey, did you get this sex book or that sex book? Or You know what I'm saying? They don't care. The mm -hmm. law library is empty. This just shows mm. you how they think about us. This is how stupid they believe we are. We're going to put you in jail, and we're going to give you the key to get out. Mm. 
That's how stupid we think you are. Here's the key right here. All you got to do is go to the law library and you'll get out. But we know you're such idiots that we're going to put the key right there. Mm. I wasn't going to fall for that. I'm not an idiot. Mm -hmm. So when you give me that key, I'm going to find it. And I'm not only going to take the key, I'm going to make a different lock. So when you think you're going to open the door, you're going to be stuck inside. Mm. You know, people don't have that mentality. They're not thinking about that. You, you know, you can't come outside and say, oh, I was in jail and, you know, I'm oppressed or, or, you know, there's somebody against me. No, it's not like that. There's been people that come home from jail that, you know, Look at people like Joanne Chesmar, Asada Shakur, Sundiata Okoli, Seiko Odingo. Um, these people were put in prison solely because they wanted to uplift their people. They didn't commit no crime mm-hmm. through the co-intelligence program. These people were put in prison, some of them killed, simply because they just wanted the better things for their people. I took money and committed a crime that I knew was wrong. You don't feel sorry for me. But now that I paid my debt and I want to be a productive person in society, now you have to provide me with something because you gave me a debt. I paid it. Now you owe me. You have to give me that that way in order for me not to go back. But you, I'm not going to go on a train and say, hey, I'm homeless, and if you don't give me money, I'm going to have to commit another crime. Well, go commit another crime, and I'm, we're going to put you back in jail, and maybe you'll die in there this time. You know, there, there is no sympathy. We're all adults. I'm not going to, you know, sit in the corner and cry and say, oh, they did me wrong. No, I made a choice. I made a choice. I did what I did, and I paid for it. Maybe they should have, you know, back then, like I said, they had to... um. The Pell program, where you could take college courses while in jail, you know, it seems that as criminals, or I'm not going to put myself in it because, yes, I am a criminal, but I don't perceive things in that way. Mm-hmm. If if you throw a bunch of candy on the table, I'm not going to grab it all and then try <laughs> to sell it to you. I'm going to leave enough on the table so we all can get some. Because the people who take it all and then try to sell it to you, they deserve what they get. You know, don't say, oh, I'm just trying to survive. No, if yeah. we all, if we don't help each other, who's going to help us? That's right. You know, it, again, and when I look in that mirror, if I can't be content with what I'm looking at, do I deserve anything? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just, you know, it goes both ways. Yeah. That lady that's blindfolded, you know, I tell people I like communism. I believe that's the greatest form of government ever created. But man is corrupt. When people put their hands on things, they destroy stuff. But on paper, if we had communism in America, everybody gets free schooling, medical care. Everybody gets a little plot of land to do. Just because you're a doctor and I'm a a train engineer, we're going to get paid the same money. Nobody's no better than anybody else. But when man gets involved, people get involved, they screw things up. Oh, well, you're my brother, so... Even though you're a train engineer and I don't know you and you're a train engineer, I'm going to throw you a couple extra dollars. Corruption causes problems, you know, unless we can see each other equal and every man gets what what they got coming, you know. On that note, my last question, but if you both have other questions that you wanted to ask, please do. My last question is, what is your reason for writing this book? Both books even. You know, um... 
I wrote it because, like I said, my mom and other people said, you should write a book, you know? I, it, I enjoyed the look in people's eyes when they would say, wow, you've been through that. How did you do all that time? You know, it's a funny question when somebody asks me that. How did you do a Listen, I had no choice, mm. you know? If somebody dropped you in a fire, <laughs> you're going to try not to get burnt, right? Yeah. It's not how did you try not to get burnt. It all clicked in my head and said, look, don't get burnt. You know, you go to jail. 30 years. The judge didn't say, well, do as much as you can and call us back. And, well, you know, it is what it is, you know. Did you start writing the book in prison? Oh, yeah. I finished it in prison. I I was done with it. Yeah, when I came home, Mm -hmm. the only paperwork I came home with was the release papers, my check for my money, um, the book and medical and, you know, some legal papers. Mm -hmm. That was it. Everything I left behind. Everything. Guys were like, yo, you're not going to take that home? Yeah, all right. You take it home. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) left my cell the way it was. They said, yo, you're going to leave me? I said, look, I'm leaving it in a cell. If you get there to get it, it's yours. But I'm not taking nothing. Because the saying goes, if you take something with you, you got to bring it back. (laughs) And I'm not bringing nothing back. I love that. (laughs) It is what it is. That's why they say don't write your name in jail, because you'll be back to erase it. Mm. You know? Wow. So when, how did you two meet? Like, what was the day? Like, what what was the spark? Like, what what happened? Oh, I thought I covered that in the beginning. Yeah, you You did. did. But like the day, that moment, like when your eyes met. It didn't happen. Well, I don't think it happened right away. It happened amongst time. So you started talking with each other, talking with each other. Yeah, he would come and give coffee. At first, I would just like, hey, yeah, I'll take coffee. See you later. You know, I really don't talk to nobody. I sit, I read my books because Mm -hmm. I love books so much. I heard you read like 2,000. You've read like 2,000. Oh, I'm past 2,000. I go through about three books a day. That's what I keep in my bag here. I I always have a replacement. I have met a lot of people who give me books. So I have a vast library now. But that's my only concern. When I read a book, I get into the book. I'm in the book. You know, people would come up to me and say, hey, are you sleeping? No, I'm reading the book. Mm. Mm. (laughs) My goodness. Well, um, did I forget anything? Is there anything more that we should cover in this particular episode? Because I want to do another episode and I want to talk about your life after jail and what that has been like and promote your other book. Um, Any more questions before we go into like the Kickstarter and like what it is that you actually need to make things happen? I don't think so. Okay, so let's get into it. What do you guys need? What do you need to make this book come about and like how can we help how can the people listening help because i want to help great so we put this project to to publish ishmael's first book uh just another book uh, on a platform called kickstarter which i think a lot of people are familiar with um so far we're up to what about 200 and something else out of trying to raise $7,500, which would be for the first publishing of the book and also to create sort of a contingency fund for Ishmael for living expenses because he is still experiencing homelessness. He's having trouble getting his public assistance. Um, mm. He's got some some health care needs. Um, so, 
Yeah, anybody can go to Kickstarter and search by the book title, just another book, and you'll see it. And the clock is ticking on this. Uh, Think about Kickstarter is sort of an all or nothing proposition. Mm -hmm. So um, if you don't make everything, you make nothing essentially. Right. And so, but you'll be starting a new one if you don't. And if this, you know, this was our first putting it out there into the universe. Um, if we don't get if we don't get what we need on Kickstarter, we're going to certainly try another platform. Good, definitely. One way or another, we're going to get this book published. Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, and, and there we'll are a lot of other platforms out there. Also, right? Yeah, most definitely, we'll be sharing the information mm-hmm. as it comes to us, mm-hmm. um, and then you know putting it up on social media, which mm-hmm. is the new advertising firm of <laughs> life right now. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, by the time this comes out, um, we'll have either the same. Kickstarter that you're going or a new one that we can um, kind of plug. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the goal again? $7,500. All right. We can do that, y'all. $7,500. Come on. Right. You know? And what is the book called again? Just Another Book. Just, Just Another, another book. book. Just Another too. Book, y'all. I love the title of it. Yeah, most definitely. Um, but thank you both for coming down and um, sitting down to talk to us. Like, I really, really appreciate it. And your story to me is one that is really important and yes. people should know it and yes. read it and buy it and send money for it. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. So thank you so much, guys. Oh, we appreciate being in here and we look forward to the next time. Yes, Yes. the next time. Most definitely. Um, All right. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Definitely Definitely Not For Everyone with Nicolette and Diana. Deuces. Um, And we have been talking to Mark and Ishmael, and we've been talking about um, the new book that's coming out called just another book yes and we need money y'all we're trying to hit $7,500 that'll help to get the book up and it'll also help Ishmael with his living expenses because he is experiencing homelessness right now and y'all have big hearts I know you do and I know you have um, the means to so please um, help him out um, as much as you can all right y'all thanks so much bye-bye bye